Um, as you can see, this is a very big group, a lot of logistical challenges, but we are ready to go. So I want to welcome everybody to the Cato Institute. Uh, everybody here in the Hayek Auditorium, thank you for coming. Everybody watching online, and if you're following on Twitter, welcome. And our Twitter hashtag for this event is hashtag Cato Higher Ed. Hashtag Cato Higher Ed. So feel free to, to tweet if you've got questions. We have somebody in the audience who is tracking Twitter. It's going to be a fully interactive experience, I hope. Uh, my name is Neil McCluskey, and I am the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. Uh, and I hope with this big group that we can have something that seems to be increasingly rare in American society, which is a civil discussion with a lot of different viewpoints represented. Um, that said, now, uh, the way this was supposed to work was I was supposed to have the mic that wasn't plugged into the floor, so if things got ugly, I could run away. Um, <laughs> but instead, our moderator gets that, so if things get ugly, she can run away, and I will be stuck here. Um, in the interest of full disclosure, I need to note that Eric Julin, uh, right here, uh, he works for the Center for Excellence in Higher Education, which is an offshoot or connected, believe me, it gets complicated, and we're likely to hear about those complications. Uh, but he's connected to uh, what were for-profit colleges once owned by Cato board member Carl Barney. Uh, so that is full disclosure. The goal here today is to really just have us all give very brief introductory remarks, basic ideas that we have about for-profit colleges, and then have a lot of free-flowing question and answer and to expertly guide that Q&A, but disconnected from the floor if you need to <laughs> run away. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Kimberly Heffling, senior education writer at Politico. Prior to joining Politico Pro in 2015, Ms. Heffling served as the national education writer at the Associated Press. Uh, during her 18-year career at the AP, she covered diverse issues that included veterans and military home front issues in Pennsylvania politics. She also served as an embedded reporter with the 101st Airborne Division early in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which probably means if things get ugly, you'll be the last to run away. <laughs> um, in 2015, she received third place in education writing in the National Headliner Awards competition. Uh, she's a native of Wichita, Kansas, and graduated from Kansas State University. Kimberly, thank you very much, and good luck with this group. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> First of all, I'm just going to do some brief introductions and then let everybody make an opening statement. So um, starting here on my left, we have Bob Shireman, who's a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. We have um, oh, Barmack Narsirian, OK, and <laughs> policy director for the American Association of State Colleges and Universities. And we have uh, Ben Miller, who is senior director for post-secondary education at the Center for American Progress. We have Eric Julin, who is president and chief executive officer of the Center for Excellence in Higher Education. And we have Richard Vetter, who founded and directs the Center for American Center for College Affordability and Productivity. They, they mixed their chairs around a little bit. So caught me on guard. <laughs> Keep you on your toes. All right. Bob, do you want to start and just give Sure. A um, I, I, I'd like to give just sort of an overview of uh, uh, thoughts on this whole topic. <clears throat> For-profit companies um, can are allowed to spend money however they want and are held accountable by shareholders whose financial interests are for that entity to have as much net revenue as possible because they're allowed to pocket that net revenue, which means they want to charge as much as they can in, in a market and they want to spend as little as possible to uh, 
to develop the product or service that they are, uh, that they are selling in that market. That, that works incredibly well for certain kinds of things, for, uh, for the chairs that we're all sitting in, for the clothes that we're wearing, for developing the phones that we have in our pockets, for the innovation that occurs on those phones, for the cars that we drive, and the incredible innovations that occur with those cars, uh, for the food supply that we, that we have. Uh, that approach works quite well. It has, for hundreds of years, not worked very well with things like education. Because unlike all of those other products, education isn't something that I can say, here it is. You, it is in, instead, in education, is whatever the provider of the education says is a, is a decent education. It's like you could have uh, uh, delivering a car without wheels, and the person would not know that it's without wheels because you just have to rely on the provider that a quality education is, is being provided. That is the market failure that leads to education to uh, having to be handled in some different way. And the method that has developed over time was uh, for the use of public and nonprofit. And early on, it was often uh, religious institutions, uh, trusted institutions. Um, and they are required to abide by two key rules. These are regulations. These are regulations that apply only to public and nonprofit entities, not to for-profit entities. So they are, at their core, different. The two rules are, one, that all revenue has to be put toward education, or whatever the purpose of the nonprofit entity is. The second rule is that there has to be a committee of people without a financial interest who police and monitor the first rule to make sure that all of the money goes into the purpose of the enterprise. Now, these differences are the reason of, for the observable differences that we see in how public and nonprofit institutions on the one hand and for-profit institutions on the other hand behave. Sometimes better, sometimes worse, depending on, depending on your perspective. In the case of nonprofit and public institutions, we all think of them as entities that tend to be much more tradition-based much less inclined to jump on to possible efficiencies, uh, so what some people might see as efficiencies, what other people might see as uh, something that contributes to a decline in quality that's difficult to measure. Um, less inclined, we all talk about, you know, for-profit colleges are more likely to, quote, innovate. Um, and that is, a, that is a function of the differences in the core structures of, of, the, of the entities themselves. For-profit institutions, on the other hand, because of the nature of that invisible product, are much more likely to enroll people who don't know what they're getting into or are not really qualified for the education, to spend too little on the actual education itself, to lower their standards to keep people uh, enrolled. Um, uh, and, and we see that in the behavior of for-profit colleges. This does not tend to be in a, without government funding, bad for-profit colleges tend to be short-lived or small. Um, 
they, they don't usually grow to behemoth size. What happens with government funding is that you essentially have the appearance of the government saying, oh, it's perfect, this, is a, this education is perfectly fine at $15,000 a head, and you have the owners of these colleges seeing, if I can enroll 10,000 students at, and, and clear $10,000, I'm a billionaire. And if you've ever been to one of these education investors conferences, the hype and energy and excitement around the potential to make a whole lot of money um, on, on education is, uh, I mean, I, you know, I get excited at these conferences about the potential to change the nature of education. That is perfectly fine if what they're doing is is selling products to public and nonprofit um, entities that are running schools, so that the ones that the people who are deciding what qualifies as a decent education don't have that excessive push to just make money. That's the problem we run into here. So, so I, I would say overall on the on the uh, uh, awful versus abused. Not all for-profit colleges are awful all the time, but they are always more dangerous than public and nonprofit institutions. And if we're gonna be shoveling public money in their direction, we have to be aware of those dangers and address them. I think that, are we, do we see so? How yeah, do we this do is, better? This is my fault, because I was having it bounce back and forth. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. So. Who, am I next? Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to comment on what Bob said, but I think maybe I should just present a few, what I perceive to be a few, let's call them stylized facts about for-profits and uh, give an example. And why I think for-profits have maybe in some cases been unfairly maligned. Uh, First of all, an interesting things about for-profit institutions in the United States is that to a much greater extent than other institutions, they tend to serve low-income, first-generation college students. Now, on the one hand, that's, that's a risky thing to do because many of these people are inclined not to succeed uh, for whatever reasons. We won't go into that today. But I think that's an admirable goal if you believe in... Uh, for example, what the Obama administration has said all along is access is important. So that's one thing they do. The, f- the second thing is for-profits, because of the profit motive, be, uh, tend to be relatively efficient. They use fewer resources per student than other institutions in total. And thirdly, related to that, they use fewer public resources. They receive no subsidies directly from the federal government. And indeed, the opposite. They pay taxes. They're taxpayers rather than uh, uh, tax recipients. And I think that often gets uh, lost in the equation. The accounting, by the way, in higher ed, it leaves a lot to be desired. And if we get to talking about capital costs, which is where the profit part of for a higher ed comes in, is really compensation for the capital resources used, which in the uh, public sector, and I, by the way, I'm in my 52nd year of public school teaching right now at a public university. I mean, we sort of assume capital resources come from God. They're just dropped on us somehow. <laughs> or some rich <laughs> alum who was sort of uh, conned into giving a building. Uh, uh, so, so that's uh, there. Uh, fourth, I think in on the whole, 
for-profit institutions in the last decade or so, maybe longer, have been vastly discriminated against uh, as part of the regulatory efforts of the federal government. Uh, there have been uh, actions taken that have been directed specifically at for-profits. Now, it's true that a lot of for-profits have poor performance levels. It's true, though, the same is true of all colleges. Let me pick two schools that are within five miles. I'll use my finger here, West Virginia PowerPoint here. Five miles of this building. One is the University of District Columbia, and the other, located within one mile of this building, is something called Strayer University of D.C. Now, I went on my iPhone to the college, Department of Education college scorecard and just, what, are the, what do we know about these two schools? Well, at UDC, University of District Columbia, the graduation rate is 15%. At Strayer, D.C., it's 23%. Not a particularly high rate, but a good bit higher than the rate at UDC. What happens to kids after, or in many cases, these kids are 40 or 50 years old, but to me, that's still a kid. Uh, what happens to grad, uh, people after attending these schools? What happens in terms of earnings? Well, according to the college scorecard, uh, the, the, those attending the University of District Columbia average $34,800 a year. Those going to Strayer average $49,200 a year. Now, in some sense, as comparing apples to oranges, I know that perhaps the demographics of the people going to Strayer to begin with are different than those going to UDC. I'm, I'm aware of that. The point I'm making here is the notion that for-profits are all, because of this nefarious profit motive, are out to somehow hurt and main people and are inferior is simply not borne out by the facts. Uh, I think if you're going to attack for-profits, why not go after the University of District Columbia? If you want to have quality control by governments, and I'm not sure I do, but if you're going to do it, why not at least treat the University of District Columbia Chicago State University in Chicago is worse. I can give you worse examples than UDC, but that's the only one within five miles that I could find. Uh, I think we, that is what we have. So we should evaluate uh, schools not on the basis of who owns them or their, uh, the, whether they're for-profit or not for-profit, whether they're private or public, but we should evaluate them on the basis of the performance of the students. And I think, uh, and, and how they use public monies. And I think that we have generally uh, maligned the for profits a bit too much. Uh, so, um, <laughs> there are aspects of the comments just made that I actually agree with. And I'm not here to categorically condemn all for profits solely on the basis of their corporate filing status as guilty of anything. But having said that, to echo Bob's point, there is a vast body of economic literature that suggests that consumers have a much harder time assessing the quality of services, particularly long-term services, medical care, education, than goods, which are tactile and can be inspected. 
um, you add to that the fundamental problem that has bedeviled humanity since Plato's Gorgias, which is what is real education and what is sophistry packaged as education, and add to those two facts the additional sort of Cato favorite footnote that all of this is only made possible by enormous amounts of federal money being thrown into the mix. And you end up with a fairly lethal combination that theory suggests could generate what economists call externalities, people essentially running firms that, that do very well, mainly because they generate costs that they project onto others. Now, that's what theory suggests. But, uh, you know, theory could be wrong, so we do a fact check. And, you know, the plural of anecdote is not data. You know, we can pick two institutions and find disparities between any two pair, you know, any pairing you come up with. But the facts are that the stuff of education, which is instructional expenses, that's, you know, that's the efficiency argument. Yes, they're very efficient. 19.2% of the total outgo at for-profits goes towards instruction for most Traditional institutions, which I want to emphasize, although I represent some of them, are not perfect. Uh, that number is above 50%. Now, you could go to a restaurant that does that, where the ingredients cost only 20% versus the ingredients costing 50% of the tab. And it could be that the chef is so phenomenal that, that he's cooking something up that nobody could compete with, even with subpar ingredients. Uh, but then you have to look at the outcome and taste the food. And the outcome is pretty ugly here, systemically. It involves uh, default rates, which are very imperfect, by the way, measure of actual financial consequences that run even controlling for um, demographics at twice the rate of other institutions. That's not a happy place to be. And the explanation, that theoretical explanation that says yeah, you know, I hope to God this building was constructed by a for-profit firm because I work for a nonprofit and I know what kind of building they would do. But I sure hope that there existed a building code and inspections and fines and criminal penalties if that for-profit builder, who is obviously much more motivated to save every penny for obvious reasons, undersized the beams. And that's the challenge here. The challenge is that we need to recognize the power of the profit motive. It certainly has a place in the provision of the services we are talking about. I, I am not at all sanguine about solving the problem by just expelling them. That, that's just idiotic because, frankly, it's a filing status again. But I do think we need to recognize that the system we have is inadequately... Uh, regulated. The regulations are primarily procedural and not substantive. They're very vexing in terms of paperwork, but they're ineffective in terms of outcome. And, and uh, that a more reasoned environment would actually favor, I believe, the for-profit sector in that it would push fraudsters out of the game and restore the reputation that, that, that has become so toxic. 
Okay, I'm up. I'm the, the sacrificial lamb. I'm, I'm the only guy up here who really is, has spent his life and his career working in the for-profit sector. And I want to thank Neil and Cato for hosting the event because I, I do echo what he had said earlier. I think it's important that we have an open and candid dialogue. Um, and that can only lead to improvements, I think, in all sectors of higher education. But I've spent 25, 28 years in for-profit education. I've held virtually every job you can imagine at a career college. I started as a high school admissions rep and spent time in admissions. I've taught classes in academics. I've owned colleges. Um, and for the last seven years, um, I've operated a group that was for-profit um, and has actually converted into nonprofit status, and I still run that group of colleges. So um, today, I really don't know what I am anymore um, because I, I think I'm a new category unto itself as of August of this year when our institutions that went and converted through a merger into nonprofit, um, we've been recognized and technically approved as nonprofit. States view us as nonprofits, as nonprofits. The IRS views us as nonprofits. But the Department of Education in August said, well, we're going to recognize that you own your colleges and you're a nonprofit, but we want to treat your colleges as for profit for Title IV regulatory purposes. So I think I'm a brand new category. There's public colleges, there's non for profit colleges, there's for profits, and then there's this weird hybrid that is me. But during my career, I've also participated actively in the accreditation process in the United States. And I served as a commissioner for six years, and I've probably conducted over 100 accreditation visits to for-profit colleges during the time that I've been in the sector. And, and I can tell you today with absolute certainty and moral conviction that the vast majority of for-profit institutions out there are not evil, they're not bad, they're not trying to rip off students, and in fact, it's completely the opposite. What I've seen visiting for-profit colleges and running for-profit colleges is an unbelievably committed group of people who are focused solely and specifically on the needs of the students, and as others mentioned, Richard mentioned, a very challenging population of students, but they're focused on taking that student giving them the best education they can that is very focused and very career specific, and then getting those students employed. If you look at our mission statement, it's real simple, to take students and get them a much better job faster. You look at the mission statements of most of the traditional players in higher ed, the public sectors, and employment and careers and outcomes are almost non-existent in those mission statements. Richard mentioned some data. And, and when we talk about for-profits and non-profits, I think it's important to get past the rhetoric, to get past the sensationalism, and to really look at what the data shows. And before I came, I looked at, we have colleges in six western states, but four of those states are the bulk of our colleges. That's Utah, California, Arizona, and Colorado. And I looked at um, the Chronicle's data, which I believe they pull from IPEDS, but the Chronicle has a site called collegecompletion.chronicle.com, where you can pull up data on institutions. And if you look at the graduation rate for two-year community colleges in those four states, the average, and this is not a two-year graduation rate, but how many of those students graduate in three years, the average is about 21% for community colleges in those four states. If you look at the for-profit two-year colleges in those states, the graduation rate is an average of 63.7%, 300% higher 
than what you see from a group of institutions serving a relatively similar, similar population. In reality, the, the population that for-profit colleges serve by and large is a higher at-risk population than even the public sector. Now, do I think all for-profit colleges are good? That they are perfect? Absolutely not. And I'll be the first to say there have been absolutely some abuses over the 28 years I've been in the sector. And I've seen some pretty ugly things that have happened in the for-profit sector. But to say that that incident or those isolated and dramatized issues are indicative of the entire sector is unfair. And I don't believe it's at all supported by the data. And really, if you take an objective look and we base this on the data, I think we have a very different perspective relative to how they perform. Now, that being said, I think it's also true to say, and we would probably all recognize and agree, that, that there are probably some pretty poor players in the public sector, whether they be community colleges or nonprofit institutions or public four-year institutions, that have not done the best job they can, have not performed well relative to the entire sector. So today's question, you know, is it, are for-profits awful or are they abused? I think if you, you get past the sensationalism, you get past some of the blatant bias that exists out there, and if you look at the data and you look at what's happened over the last seven years, I think the absolute answer to that question is yes. Career schools and for-profit colleges have absolutely been targeted and been abused. It really began, I would, I would say, I, I look at a, a, an important data point, which was the fall of 2010, and it began with the, the hearings that Senator Harkin conducted in the GAO reports. And it's continued and been more aggressive and more coordinated and more systematic, and, and even as recently as two weeks ago, with the borrower defense to, regu to uh, repayment regulations that really took a, a piece of the law that was four sentences and we've now ended up with 200 pages of regulations to, quote, implement that four sentences in the law. And those regulations, if you look at them in detail, go far beyond simply defining the rules and the processes for borrowers to apply for and receive repayment of their student loans in instances where there was fraud or abuse or misrepresentation. They roll out a whole new requirement relative to letters of credit and other things that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. So this idea, you know, which I think that for-profits are evil or the tax status of the organization is bad, I think it really comes not from a database. It comes from an ideological base. And it comes from an, a position of profit is evil, profit is bad, and profit in education is probably the worst of all. Um, I tend to want to be very objective. I run a business. I run colleges. I look at lots of data. And to me, the data should drive the decisions and the perspectives and the evaluation of good or bad or quality or low quality, not an ideological perspective. So where do we go from here? Um, I'll tell you, my position is that in today's world and in our society, we absolutely need all sectors of higher education performing as well as they can. There is absolutely an important place for public higher institutions, research institutions, four-year colleges. There's absolutely a critical place and need for two-year colleges, for community colleges and institutions. But that being said, there is also an absolute critical role for for-profit institutions to serve those students who have been either disenfranchised by the public sectors or the models in the public sectors don't serve their needs 
and to take those people and turn them from tax users into a career-specific education and become taxpayers. That benefits all of us. End of the day, my position is we focus on outcomes. Let's look at, across the board equally, graduation rates. Let's look at employment rates. And let's look at the return on investment. Not only the return on the investment that the student pays, but that we as the population in the United States through our tax dollars contribute to higher ed. There was a comment that was made that if you take away the subsidies, there wouldn't be any for-profits, that they would be small. That's absolutely true with public education. If we took away the subsidies that go to public education, you wouldn't have large universities, you wouldn't have large community colleges. They survive on that as well. So if we're gonna subsidize higher ed, and that's a whole different conversation, but if we're gonna do it, let's do it, and let's measure return on investment across the board equally. Thanks. Great, thanks. Uh, I just wanna make one really quick point on the graduation rates, and then I'll get into my uh, larger point. For-profits mostly award certificates, Two-year schools mostly award associate degrees. When you compare the two, it's, apple, it's apples to oranges. That's why they're higher, because it's a one-year certificate completion rate versus two-year. Anyway, congratulations to all of you. You're all now shareholders, or have been for years, in a bank that's worth, got about a trillion dollars in assets. Now imagine you're sitting down one day, and you're looking at the portfolio that you've got, and you notice that you've got a population in your portfolio that accounts for about 10% of the people you lend to, and call it about 25% of the dollars you hand out. And you say, all right, well, what, what does this investment buy me? What, what's happening with it? And you look at the numbers, you say, let's see, 47% of the loans I make to these folks default within five years of entering repayment. After two years, three quarters of these individuals actually owe more, sorry, two, after two years into repayment, three quarters of these individuals actually owe more than the day, the day they entered repayment. And then you say, well, all right, well, maybe you know, there's something that explains that, and like, maybe they're just making good money, and it's going to take some time to sort it out. And you look and say, well, okay, but after 10 years of entering college and getting this money from us, 57% of the schools that these people attended on average are producing individuals who earn less than a high school graduate. You might say to yourself, something seems like it might be going wrong here. And you know, it's clear, like not every bet's going wrong. Obviously, like half of people aren't defaulting in five years, 25% are managing to pay down their balance somewhat, but something's off. And I think the thing that's off here is not the profit motive, it's the profit motive interacting with the way it's financed. And there's really basically like two main flaws here. And I think the first thing to really understand is that we should not pretend that private for-profit colleges are operating in a private market. They are largely financed entirely by federal money. So for example, when you go and look at ITT Technical Institute's 10K, 4% of its cash revenue in the latest one it filed came from sort of employment, people's savings, things like that. That is 20 times less than what it got from the federal government. And this matters because when you're financed entirely by federal money or other people's money, as it's sometimes referred to, that means that the, your competitive dynamics are different from how it would be in a normal private business. If you're a normal private business, you need to find a way to attract a consumer who's willing to put their own money forward. So you have to either you know, price affordably and sort of say, I'm at the low end of the market, but I'm a good value, or you have to price as sort of a luxury good and sort of say, you know, I cost more, but I'm worth it, or something that makes the value case for someone to enter your doors. The problem is, though, when you're not using people's own money, 
then the dynamics are totally different and your competition becomes around getting anyone you can to come in the door because as Bob mentioned earlier, you sort of know each and every person is gonna bring with them like $10,000 in free revenue essentially. And so that leads to the second issue which is that the competition then becomes not over quality or performance or outcomes or anything like that, it becomes around size because each additional person is more revenue People times revenue equals money. And when you have outside investors, this exacerbates the problem because you get the pressure not just to achieve scale, but to constantly achieve scale and constantly keep growing. It's why we've sort of seen as many of the uh, for-profits became publicly traded, the ones that were less judicious in their growth were the ones that ran in the most trouble. You know, if you look at the University of Phoenix over time, it used to have a very solid business model focused only on adult learners with some college, stable employment, things like that. It goes public, investors come back every quarter and say, what are you doing for me now? Are you growing? And eventually you tap out your population of people you can get through that old model, so you jettison it, you start a bunch of two-year programs that are very problematic, you get to almost half a million people, and you've got problems left and right. And you know, I think when you then see all these stories about issues with questionable recruitment tactics, going to homeless shelters, uh, enrolling people for programs that they can't possibly actually um, get a job in, either because they don't have the proper approvals or because of past criminal history, things like that. It's all because the sort of model is out of whack. Now, I think that is a fixable model, and I think that is why we've seen a lot of the attempts to deal with this through regulation over time. Gainful employment is ultimately, a, sorry, gainful employment, which for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, is the rule that basically says you can't have too much debt relative to the actual earnings of your graduates. That is an attempt to put a focus back on questions of the actual return on the investment versus what people are paying for it, which is otherwise absent from any other type of regulation here. Same thing, limits on recruitment that says, you know, you can't compensate people for sort of putting butts in seats is a way to try to break this otherwise incentive that's there to go after as many people as possible and sort of reconfigure the value proposition and how schools think about it. Because one of the nice things about a for-profit college is it's very responsive to incentives. If you structure the incentives properly and correct for them, they will behave in a better manner. And that's exactly what we saw after gainful employment. You saw schools come and say, hey, maybe that criminal justice program I've got actually is popular because people like CSI, but not because there's actually any jobs, so why don't we get rid of it? And things like that, because they see the incentive and they respond to it. Two final points. One. Uh, being bad as a college or being unsuccessful in educating students is not a zero-sum game. Just because there are problematic for-profits does not mean there are not problematic uh, non-profits or publics. It's not sort of a zero-sum thing, but there is an outsized problem here versus here. Two, not every for-profit struggles in this way. I mean, I think there are some that over time have been very judicious in their approach to this, but it's cost them. They never got quite as big as the others. They were never as profitable. They were never sort of the Wall Street darlings that others saw. And that in and of itself is a bit of a challenge with the difficulty, especially when you're talking about sort of the outside investors. So I will stop there. Well, let's start off talking oh, about wait, Donald yeah. Trump. Oh, I'm oh, sorry, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I kind of own the place. It's his house, it's his house, let him talk. Yeah. I'm talking no matter what. <laughs> um, but I'll try to be brief, and actually, because a lot of people have already said what I'm going to say, uh, and, and Ben actually just pretty much took half of what I was going to talk about, uh, because I, I, you know, I was going to say pox on all your houses, for-profit, not-for-profit, private, not-for-profit, doesn't matter to me. 
because I think the subsidies are the problem. And I think that you made an excellent point about the subsidies. Where I, where I would differ is subsidies are a problem whether you're for-profit or not-for-profit. Because the fact of the matter is, it seems to me, whether you are in a, uh, legally speaking, a for-profit entity or you're in a non-profit entity, people are people. And they tend to want to get what is best they feel is best for them. So if you're in a not-for-profit, it may not mean that the investors are making money, but you'd like to have a bigger salary. You may not want to have as big a workload. You may have a nicer, want to have a nicer place to work, a nicer building, fancier offices. And so we're all, I think, regardless of your sector, trying to ultimately, as best you can, maximize revenue or some good you have or something you think is important um, and often to have those benefits redound to you. And I don't know that because you want to either have it money going to investments or you want a lighter workload with a more sub greater sabbaticals that there's a difference. Um, I think the subsidies are absolutely what throw off people's incentives. I do, though, think we've been talking about data a lot, so I, I took the time to compile some data. I'm going to throw it out there just because I didn't want to waste my time yesterday. Really, I didn't work that hard to get this data, so don't feel too badly for me. But if you go to the National Student Clearinghouse, which we haven't heard mentioned, but it's another source of data, what you see is that all <coughs> sectors of higher education do pretty poorly. And they do especially poorly when you start to do things like control for, again, the sort of students that they have and the challenges those students face. So using National Student Clearinghouse data, and this is probably the, arguably the best data we have because it, it draws from a lot of students. It's not like the federal data, which is um, first-time, full-time students. Um, but always there are problems with data. I don't want to pretend that these are perfect. But the best sector of higher education for six-year completion rates is the private nonprofit sector. And they only have 69% of students finish a four-year program within six years. Only 69%. And these tend to be the schools that draw from the, you know, the students who have been most focused on going to college and succeeding in college. So that's not very good, only 69% finishing a four-year program in six years. If you go to the community colleges, the two-year public colleges, um, and, and this is a sector that's often been lionized, even by the White House, only 38% of people complete a program, first-time students, I should say, complete a program within six years. Now, these students tend to have greater challenges than the ones who are going to private nonprofit colleges, but that's still a very bad completion rate. For-profit colleges also produce bad completion rates. The six-year completion rate for four-year for-profits is just 33%. For two-year for-profits, it's 52%. None of these are outcomes that anybody should be celebrating, it seems to me. Now, it's also true, of course, that for-profits do have a disproportionate share of defaulters. But it is also important to put that into context. So as already mentioned, I think Rich mentioned it and other people, they don't get subsidies up front. So public colleges get state and sometimes local money, depending on two-year or four-year, subsidies up front. That enables them to charge less, which means the student isn't paying as much. Of course, the more you pay, it's a good chance, the greater your chances of defaulting. Though, of course, we know that it's often students with lower amount to default more, but that's not necessarily because of price, it's a lot about the challenges those students face. We've also noted that for-profit schools pay taxes. Public colleges and universities don't pay taxes, and public colleges and universities and nonprofit private colleges, if you donate to them, you get a tax break. That doesn't apply to for-profit schools. 
Um, and again, as I mentioned, they tend to, if you look at the for-profit schools, work with students who face the biggest challenges. So they tend to be older, they tend to be uh, from lower income backgrounds, uh, and less likely to have had a college prep background. And, and talking about that all people are more or less self-interested, there's a lot more that goes into that, but I think broadly speaking, you can say people are self-interested. We, we have a report, you can get it outside, by Vance Freed, who's at Oklahoma State University, where he calculated significant profits by not-for-profit schools for, for educating undergraduates. If you look at how much is brought in per student and what is actually spent on their education, there are big profits. Now, those don't go to investors. Some of it is money that may go to research, but it's also money that goes to nicer buildings. Uh, you know, there are some colleges. This is not a primary cross driver, but it tells you about how much money is in higher education. It could go to the water park that your local college may have. Um, and so, there is research evidence that not-for-profit schools are still bringing in more money than it costs to supply that product. Um, and again, I think all people are self-interested, and this is part of the problem. When we use other people's money, when we use taxpayer money, it reduces people's incentives to think as long and as hard as they can about, should I pursue uh, this program, wherever it may be, whatever it may be, is the price I'm being charged a reasonable price, and what other things will I demand? Will I say I'm going to focus exclusively on getting the skills I need and moving on? Or is it I might like the nice student center and the water park and a lot of parties and going to football games and things like that? The subsidies fundamentally change our incentives. And one of the other things they do, which I think has put a lot of people in kind of a bind, is I think they tend to also drive credential inflation, where you need a credential for jobs, even though that credential may not signify you have skills and abilities that are actually needed in that job. And I think that's important as well. And with that, back to you. And, and you don't have to call on me again if you don't want to. <laughs> Sorry to cut you off. <laughs> no problem. Um, first of all, let's talk about Donald Trump. Uh, I'd love to hear what you all anticipate is going to happen in the Trump administration on these issues. We haven't heard Trump address these issues on the campaign trail. We have seen him defending his role in Trump University, which I will note is a real estate seminar, not a traditional college or university, but it has gotten kind of wrapped up in this conversation. So um, can I get each one of you to please um, just address what you anticipate? I think we have no idea what will come from the Trump administration <laughs> on any topic whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I have, I have no idea. Um, you know, people who have told me, oh yeah, you know, all the, all the regulations are gone. I have, I don't know. I don't know if that's gonna, gonna happen or not. Um, I do think that Trump University is an interesting test case. I mean, when you think about the, the invisible box and selling that to people, um, you know, it's an example of someone, anybody can just say, oh yeah, I have a university and this is going to be great for you. And they can convince people of that and charge them outrageous amounts of money. It's also an example of where it collapsed over time because it was a scam. Um, and I'm sure glad that we weren't pumping a whole lot of government money into it. Um, now, what kind of lessons will come from that for this administration? I do not know. Do, would you like to address what you expect? To well, see I don't know what's. I, I I read somewhere that at one point he, uh, Mr. Trump, said that maybe we should do away with the Department of Education. I did read that, uh, which, by the way, I view as a, a very positive statement. Uh, 
but I don't know whether that was one of these. I I'm, I'm more or less agree with Bob. I don't know for sure what he's going to do. But I do think Trump will is a smart guy who will ultimately realize that there's three huge problems with higher education. It's too costly. There's too little learning going on. And too many students are not getting good jobs these days. And he'll say, well, what can we do about this? And I think he will come to a conclusion similar to what Neil came to, that really arguing about for-profit versus not-for-profit is trivial in terms of the broader problems that are facing higher ed. What about, what do you anticipate he'll do on some of these issues? Mm, well, short answer is I don't know, but, but we've spent a fair amount of time since the election thinking through the likely course of events over the short uh, horizon. It seems to me that uh, most of the s uh, significant policy decisions for the next year or so will be with Congress, that, that he is unlikely to have particularly strong, visceral positions on many of the issues we're talking about, potentially even about for-profits. I do think he has a visceral position on regulations, and he would be inclined, as would the Republican majorities on both sides, to, to deregulate. Uh, that is much easier said than done, it turns out. Uh, so I don't know those, those who are pinning their hopes on a retraction of the, say, gainful employment have a long way to head for that to happen. There are a subset of regs that may be subject to the Congressional Review Act where legislative action could, with simple majority, uh, effectively undo some regs. I don't know whether they're going to go that there first, given the priorities he has articulated, much bigger fish to fry and bigger policy issues to disentangle, so I'm not sure what's going to happen there. Uh, I will prognosticate one point, which is that what I see as the irrational exuberance around the election and the future of uh, for-profits uh, financially will prove enormously misplaced. Because the government can certainly put the system on the, uh, put, the put the schools on the honor code and wish them luck and uh, not enforce and not police and deregulate. But at the end of the day, they can't force people to enroll in any particular type of institution. And, 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 and what I see from the for-profit sector is an utter failure to recognize that the obstructionism and, 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 and the absolute unwillingness to really work constructively to fix whatever some problems we think exist. Nobody can name them. Until they go out of business, then they become problems. But, but that, that obstruction now lasting, what, six, seven years, uh, has created such uh, brand toxicity for the sector that I think it's going to take them better than a decade of actual voluntary effort on the part of the sector itself to actually restore some measure of neutrality. Uh, you know, these, these victims, and there are victims 
you know, I, I, I don't buy the notion. I, again, I want to emphasize it's not a function of whether somebody is labeled for profit or not. And yes, people are self-interested, but the intensity of your self-interest varies enormously by whether you get to take a bag of $40 million home, as the chairman of Strayer College did, or whether you take a salary home that may be increased by whatever, 10% if you're fabulously successful. So the intensity of interest varies by, by the latitude you have in terms of governance and an oversight. And, and, and uh, you know, consequently, I think, I think um, uh, these victims don't disappear from the face of the earth. They go back to their communities, they speak to their neighbors, uh, and, and, and the sector sort of runs out of <coughs> potential targets, and that's a real challenge. What do you anticipate yeah. is going to happen? I think we're going to get, well, a couple of comments. I think we're going to get back to a, a much more rational and objective structure within the Department of Education and perspective relative to where we've been the last seven years. Um, you know, I think most for-profit colleges have been, you know, fighting for their survival with a regulatory administration who was really emboldened to advance a political agenda. And that political agenda from the current administration was then filtered into the Department of Ed and they were the guys to go out and enforce that political agenda, which I tend to believe is not an appropriate role for a regulatory agency. But so I'm hoping that what's gonna happen, what I think will happen with the new leader in the Department of Ed is we'll, we'll swing back more toward an objective perspective where we're absolutely enforcing the regulations, but a look at the regulations for how they apply equally across all sectors and removing some of the most draconian, punitive regulations that exist targeting specific sectors, not because of poor performance or not because of abuse, but simply because there was an intent to drive a, a political perspective. But, and I'll echo something Barmack said that, you know, I think it would be a mistake for the for-profit sector um, to view this as let's run hog wild, let's remove all regulations that have been put in place over the last seven years. That's the worst thing they could do. And I'm in, in fact, today I'm going to uh, Dallas for a, a CEO summit for a lot of for-profit college CEOs that are members of our national association. And you know, the dialogue that we're having is, you know, certainly we want to get back to a rational thinking and objectivity. And the rules that are put in place need to apply equally to all sectors because all sectors, as Neil mentioned, have significant room for improvement in their outcomes. And we as a nation should be focused on outcomes and the return on investment of the dollars we spend. But I think what you're going to see and what I hope is going to happen is that the for-profit schools will realize that, you know, we've been attacked for seven years. There's a new game in town. There's an opportunity to really advance the, the levels of improvement, the focus on the students and the outcomes that we produce. And let's focus on that rather than trying to say this is an opportunity to get rid of a bunch of regulations. That would be a mistake. Kim, can we have a little bit of, is it okay if I sure, respond? And, and so I, I wanted to respond to this. <laughs> I wanted to respond to the, the uh, regulations applying the same to all sectors comment because it is applied very selectively by those people who say it. They want the Department of Education regulations to apply equally, but they want to ignore the regulations that are the core difference between being a for-profit entity and a non-profit entity. They want to ignore the... So applying the regulations equally would mean a for-profit entity much, must put all of, its, all of its revenue into education 
and that it must have a committee of people in control without a financial interest who are monitoring that first rule. That's what it means to apply regulations equally. So that just that comment, which, which is, it's really appealing to say, well, we shouldn't discriminate. But it's, you're, it's not discrete, it's not like skin color. It is a fundamental difference in the, in the regulatory approach to the entity that is being ignored when that, is, when that statement well, Bob, is made. Bob, let me comment on that. So what you're saying then is all of the rules and regulations relative to nonprofits should apply to my colleges equally as they apply to other Well, I'm saying if you, want, if you want all regulations to apply equally, then that's what would happen. Okay, but we now have a Department of Education, and I can tell you from a specific example, who is treating my nonprofit institutions right. completely different. <laughs> Didn't you just from say other you're going to the confab of for-profit CEOs? There I mean, are members and this is, of CEs, so this gets to the need of the National Association that are both nonprofit so and for-profit. This gets to the need that all regulations need enforcement, and the regulations that about being a nonprofit, a legitimate nonprofit need enforcement. And you have a prime example here of a, non, of, a, of a so-called nonprofit that makes a mockery of nonprofit regulations by basically setting up an approach where the former owner said, oh, now the nonprofit entity owes me as a lender some hundreds of millions of dollars and is renting the buildings from me. And that's what happened, you know, that's what happened in the case of this particular that, that college. Every single nonprofit that exists in the United States. There is no college president, no other college president in the country that owns the buildings being rented by, by the college. No, but there's, there's every single nonprofit out there that I've looked at has debt that is paid to private individuals. Who are, not in, control, no who are not in control of the institution. Our former owner's not in control of our institutions, and the debt that we have is so we're, legitimate We're getting into debt. weeds that I don't know I that know, are really I useful. That's really not the purpose. But these are regulations, both are types of regulations that need but to again, be But again, if we're going to look at outcomes, and if the end result is we want a higher education system right. that is producing good graduates with quality education that could get good jobs, yep. the focus needs to be on outcomes, <clears throat> not the tax status right. of You're the saying colleges. we should focus on the invisible box because... That's the best way of doing things. And I agree. If we could actually see what's in the invisible box, that would be spectacular. We would not be up here having this I don't conversation. Like you're saying outcomes is the invisible box. Seems well, I think outcomes... What you're saying is the invisible box is what's going on. What happened? I think outcomes are also the invisible box. And let me give graduation rates as an, as an example. A, a diploma mill, you know, me basically saying... Here's, here, here you go. Here's a PhD for Barmac. A diploma mill has a 100% graduation rate. It has no standards, but it has a 100% graduation rate. So we sort of say, oh, well, oh my gosh, these places that have, you know, at, at the same time, some of these online uh, uh, courses, uh, online programs have really, really, really low graduation rates. And I don't think that's anything to be worried about either because anybody can come and check it out. You know, like I went and I signed up. It's like, let me, can I be better at understanding poetry? You know, I go in, I sign up and I didn't finish. I think that's okay. I'm not hurt. I don't have a lot of debt. Now you can't just take a graduation rate and say this is a good college and this is a bad college. If we could, we wouldn't have any of these issues of, you know, how do you determine that? We wouldn't have the need to have um, financially disinterested people um, in control and, and making the difficult decisions about should we be enrolling low-income students who are on the margin? How much debt should they be taking on? I mean, these are the kinds of decisions that 
it's really dangerous when you have somebody who can pocket the money making those decisions. Do you want to respond? I fundamentally disagree with the notion that there's a a separate, uh, that that applying the rules across the board uh, would in in fact involve some different way of looking at for-profits than uh, is currently being discussed. Uh, For-profits make profits, and those profits go to stockholders. I'm the first to agree with that. But that is a return on capital investment. Where does the capital investment come for any public university? It comes from taxpayers. It comes, sometimes the money's borrowed. Sometimes the money is provided directly by taxpayers. Uh, Sometimes it's given by private donors, uh, uh, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. All of that is happening. Where do, but incidentally, what, what kind of buildings are for-profits in? What kind of buildings are there in? They're in rented facilities, almost exclusively. They don't, they don't go out and buy big, expansive buildings with atriums and so forth. My university is filled with them. We got more damn atriums than you uh, every new building has an atrium. That's, you cannot build a building without an atrium or a rotunda. Uh, and, and we have all these buildings, and they cost tens of millions of dollars, and taxpayers are paying for them. In a for-profit if, at Strayer or at Phoenix or uh, Bridgepoint, Bridge any of these places, they, they're in rented facilities, and they're paying rents out. What's, how much depreciation is taken on at, at, at public universities? Where does that show up? That doesn't show up. God gives us new buildings, so we don't need to depreciate. So in the cost items, that's never listed. We have a totally corrupt accounting system, to the way we look at it. That's just one of many problems. So I disagree with you, Bob. But what else? <laughs> but, but what else? Wait, about that? Hey, I've got to tell you a story about Bob that I think is true. Bob is the most powerful guy I ever met, because the day they announced Bob's appointment to whatever job he was going to be in the Department of Education, the price of stocks. No, it was uh, when I left. When uh, they, was yeah. with, it was when anyway, I left. Anyway, I figured Bob cost. Uh, by himself, reduced national wealth by, what, $200 billion or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, God, I've never met a more powerful man. I got a huge percentage of that, too. <laughs> Do you want to... Well, I'm not going to try and fall. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to address what you expect to see in a Trump administration? Poor man. <laughs> okay, all right. So let's talk about another issue that's kind of been um, a hot topic in the education world. Who's going to be the education secretary? I would be curious uh, to hear how you all think some of these issues could shape this election at all. If this, I think it'll be Richard Vetter. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, I have you, only had one second call. that motion. Yeah. Like to <laughs> see and who call. you anticipate to see. I'd love to hear that. I was going to say it should be Bob Sharman, but that'll destroy the whole economy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to go first on that one? I mean, so I guess. I don't know how much it's going to matter for higher education because I think at this point in time, the policy leadership is going to be coming much more from Congress on this issue, and particularly, I think, in the Senate from Laura Alexander. So, you know, I think the big question will be is the education secretary going to be someone who has prior government experience, like in a past Bush administration, versus someone who is a complete outsider? And that, uh, I think, affects it a lot. 
the other thing I would imagine is it's probably a little hard to make a pitch to someone to go work in an agency that you promised to get rid of. So <laughs> like that seems like a bit of a weird job to want to take unless your job your goal is like go in and burn the place down or something. But so I, I don't know. That's I mean, the I think, only pitch I would actually take. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So I, I think I don't know how much it's going to matter because I think that like the ideas and the vision and the leadership's probably less coming from the Department of Education in this next administration. Do you expect these issues to shape the selection of? Uh, I'll just say from my observation, it's sort of interesting because I, I do K-12 and higher ed and all the K-12 people are saying after we, after the Every Student Succeeds Act passed, which is re replacement for No Child Left Behind and is supposed to return all sorts of power to states and local districts, we'll see if that actually happens. But everybody seemed to say the conventional wisdom was the next Secretary of Education would come from higher ed. And it just strikes me as interesting that I don't think any of the names I've seen floated are predominantly higher ed people. They're people who have mainly done K through 12 policy. So I do wonder if the conventional wisdom was wrong. But the fact of the matter is the conventional wisdom has been so wrong about this election <laughs> that there is no such thing as conventional, conventional wisdom. wisdom. Are there some names that you anticipate are on the short list right now? Or? Uh, only the ones that we've seen. I mean, the people who are, who are on the transition team, Gerard Robinson at AEI, uh, Bill Evers from Hoover. Um, uh, I guess Ben Carson had been on there, but clearly is no longer on there. Uh, but I don't have any real insight into who's likely to get the job. Is there somebody you think would be good for the job? Or, or, well, either one on the end. <laughs> Bob and I will be cold. That would be cool. Uh, I think we could get a lot Oh, yeah, a, lot, a lot of damage. What's <laughs> your insight on this? I don't know. It's a perpetual irony of the Department of Ed that while most of its authority and most of its money is uh, focused on post-secondary, politically and symbolically, it is always uh, a K-12 oriented bureaucracy, at least at the level of um, presidential con conceptualization. So we very frequently end up with folks who come in with a great zeal to change K-12 and you have to break the bad news to them that they should have run for <laughs> the school board or, or a superintendent position somewhere as opposed to this job. Mm -hmm. So that's very likely, again, mainly because I think to whatever extent the president-elect has any kind of visceral positions on the broad portfolio of the department, they would mainly consist of K-12 issues. And therefore, I anticipate a, a more K-12 personality perhaps school choice, vouchers, that, that sort of an orientation against Common Core uh, rather than a higher ed person. Uh, you know, I, I do agree with Ben that it doesn't matter, uh, but I agree with him for two different reasons. I don't think it matters that much from a policy perspective because, I, again, I don't think it's going to be somebody with a particular higher ed uh, predisposition. But I also don't think... <coughs> Ultimately, it makes that much difference from a management point of view because it's really who they pick for assistant secretary and deputy assistant secretary position that's going to determine how the whether the trains will run on time, whether, you know, I mean, there's some fairly complex, I, I go around saying this to people, 25 years ago, the department had minimal contact with citizens. It was mostly a kind of inside baseball operation, but since we own the bank now, collectively, 
this is an agency that touches 40 million lives. It's now increasingly like the Social Security Administration. <coughs> I encourage whoever um, is advising the transition team to understand that you really do need pragmatic competence. This is not where the guy who didn't get the Vatican ambassadorship gets parked. This, this is where some very serious disruptions can really afflict the entire country. So I hope they pay heed to that. I've just mentioned that some Margaret Spellings' advice to Arnie Duncan before he came in was, you think you're taking a K-12 job, but the thing that can just could just explode, you know, you're processing tens of millions of applications for financial aid and all of that, that the, the real problems could come there. And, uh, you know, I hope this administration realizes that sooner rather than later. Who do you, who would do you think the sector would like to see as education secretary? I have no idea. I mean, I haven't had any conversations. I think we're still reeling after what happened last week that, that it never even entered anybody's mind that there would be the possibility of a, of a, of a different type of secretary. So I, I've not heard names floated from anybody within the sector. Do you want to address this? No, issue? I like Bob and Neil and everyone else, few names have been mentioned, but I have no idea, zero. Uh, I kind of agree that, and I actually, Bob made, the, uh, several made this point, uh, where does the Department of Education spend most of its money or public monies get spent? It is in higher ed, and and uh, I, I was an appointee to a commission that Margaret Spellings had on the future of higher ed, and she had come around to the view completely that the higher ed is really what is absorbing my time and effort and we you know long meetings on what do we do with the FAFSA form well the FAFSA form is really important I mean it touches on millions and millions and millions mm -hmm. of lives so I think higher ed deserves a little more hearing uh, in that making that decision so maybe it'll happen maybe it won't um. Let's talk a little bit about unfinished business. What's going on at the education department right now within the Obama administration? What are the, what, what needs to be done? Frantic resumes being printed? I don't know. <laughs> in terms of these issues, I mean, there have been a lot of changes in the last few years. Are there some things that, I would, especially on the side of the room, you would expect going on in the next two months to really... Um, well, I mean, there's, there's a couple key things we know are outstanding that I assume are going to get resolved. So one is some sort of decision on the attempt to sell the University of, or the University of Phoenix and the Apollo Group to a group of private investors. Um, basically, uh, Phoenix is a, a creditor is completely punted on this issue until uh, the department rules. So that, I assume, will come down at some point. Uh, we also have to get the fate of the uh, accrediting college account Accrediting Council for Independent Colleges and Schools, or ACICS, which has um, basically been the rubber stamp for a large number of problematic schools, including ITT Technical Institute and others, that um, is likely to have its recognition revoked by the secretary starting an 18-month process for those schools to uh, try and find a new accreditor as well as almost a certain lawsuit. Um, and then the first year of gainful employment results we should be getting at some point. I mean, I think those are the three big things that are still in process, and then I think there's a lot of other things that, you know, if they get to it, they get to Don't it. forget the state authorization reg. That's right, state authorization reg. Yeah, we, what do you, can you? So I would just add the, um, so there are thousands and thousands of, of former students of for-profit colleges that have filed for, um, to have their loans canceled, and uh, processing those uh, needs to be a, a priority of this administration and, and get that done. Um, and I think one of the, um, 
I mean, I think we have to realize that, that uh, while that costs taxpayers, it also builds into the system when Congress or the administration is going to, uh, is considers uh, repealing regulations that help to keep things uh, under control, uh, that those costs will be internalized into the cost estimates once those once once the costs actually occur in, through the borrower defense. So while there are some short-term um, taxpayer hits, longer term it helps to build into the system a recognition that there are people. If you if you have, if you're going to rip people off, the taxpayers are going to pay. We can't. What we were doing in the past was we were saying, oh, it doesn't matter because we're going to take take their social security eventually and the, the loans get paid off so the government doesn't lose anything. And so then cost estimates failed to reflect fraud. So we need cost estimates to reflect fraud and the way to do that is to forgive the loans that the defrauded students had taken out. Uh, for this side of the room, um, I had a question. What's the long-term legacy of the Obama administration in terms of oversight of for-profit colleges? And how much do you think the um, declines in enrollment in the sector are because of regulation versus just a changing economy um, and also just negative publicity related um, to news stories about what the administration has done? Well, speaking to the last thing, I'll let uh, uh, my colleague here will know more about the first. I think the regulation and uh, hostile attitudes explain all of it. I think it had the, the, the total enrollments in higher ed in, in America been flat for several years, actually. Counting the for profits in the enrollments, looking at National Clearinghouse data and so forth, enrollments have been today are not much different than they were in 2011, maybe down just a tad total. And the big drop has been in for profits and community colleges, too. Community colleges have had some drop. And I, I think some of that drop may have come anyway. But I think a large part of it is due to the regulatory environment. I'm uh, sorry. That explains it at community colleges. What? So what? No, no, the that doesn't explain job? it. No, I said part of. I said part of it will. Part of it, the economy and so forth, might explain part of it. But uh, I think uh, I'll backtrack from 100 percent. But 50, 60 percent of it is due to I think the regulatory. Can I ask a clarifying question? Yeah. When you suggest that it's regulatory intervention driving the well, decline. Well, everything, 90, 10, state reauthorization, gainful employment, all this, and the threats of this, and the th the implicit threat that, that these regulations may mean these colleges are at risk. That these, you know, going to these colleges, there's a a life expectancy to colleges. Most people assume it's infinite. Uh, one thing that higher ed needs in all sectors is creative destruction right now. We have too many universities, by the way, because of this subsidy money that Neil's talking about. But, and, and incidentally, the one thing I think will happen in the early that is will be fairly bipartisan. I think Elizabeth Warren will probably agree with maybe Lamar Alexander. I'm not sure on this, but that's stretching things a bit, but uh, is this notion of skin in the game, uh, that where you have high default rates, it, the government shouldn't be the one that's uh, taking all the, the hits. The schools themselves should share in it. And there seems to be a growing bipartisan interest in some sort of move that there will be consequences for schools. That will adversely hurt the for-profit industry, but if it's done in a, it, it could be done in a way that uh, 
uh, involves all colleges and universities. It, it, yeah, I think you're going to see, you know, I guess the first part of your question, if I heard it correctly, was kind of what do we see as the, what do I see as the legacy, maybe, of the Obama administration? I think definitely, you know, part of it's going to be a lot fewer colleges. Um, there's, you know, over 300 for-profit institutions have closed in the last five or six years, um, and that number may be larger. Um, so you're going to certainly see a lower footprint of for-profit colleges. But I think the other lasting legacy you're going to see is that, you know, there is, there is this, you know, and, and I, I call it what it is, it's an extortion game that goes on. Um, the coordinated attack that's been in place the last six or seven years started with the administration, moved into the Department of Ed, and then you saw it expand significantly into other entities, such as the CFPB and primarily state attorney generals. Um, and there isn't a single for-profit institution of any size or scale that hasn't had either an investigation or a Colorado, I mean, or, or an attorney general uh, lawsuit action over the last five or six years, I think that will be part of the legacy because they've really discovered that, you know, you can go to an institution, a for-profit institution or, you know, others, and threaten litigation, um, raise concerns of whether it's misrepresentation or just the allegations. And the allegations alone are so damaging to that institution within the marketplace that those institutions oftentimes will, will pay whatever is necessary to resolve that um, and to move forward just to get it out of the press. So that tactic, that strategy, um, I think will linger on and be somewhat of a legacy from this administration. I'd just say probably the legacy uh, regarding specifically for-profits is that I actually think that, you know, in the history books you're written, a lot of this will be seen as the administration did a lot to protect students. I think the reality is, I, I don't doubt that that was the intent, but I think the reality is there was an unfair focus on for-profit schools and something of a demonization um, to, to the exclusion of looking at all sectors and the problems throughout higher education. That said, you know, as I think I said earlier, it's not like there aren't a lot of problems in for-profit higher education. There absolutely are. So there is good reason, I think, to scrutinize that sector, but there's good reason to scrutinize every sector. And so the legacy in my mind will, will be that there was a, a disproportionate focus on for-profit schools, but I don't think that's what kind of the history books will say. Would you like to address this? Uh, <laughs> sure. So I, I actually think... Um, what will that, that history will show that this was uh, the, the for-profit industry shooting themselves in the foot because when you look at actually what was said and what was done early in the, in the administration mm -hmm. when I was there, it was we were not attacking for-profits and instead the for-profits decided to make this about. They decided to say we're being attacked and then House Republicans decided to say that this was about uh, the socialist Obama attacking profit because he just doesn't believe in profit generally. They decided to make it about that, which then turned the press and everybody focused on what's wrong with the for-profits, which led to exposés and hearings and made it about the for-profits. If the industry had said, as they say now, yeah, there's some problems. We tend to get a little more out of control than the rest of the, uh, the than the other sectors because our our incentives are different. We'll sit down. We'll work things out. 
I think it would have all gone very, very differently and that we would actually see rather than a stumbling for-profit sector with a horrible reputation, we would see, uh, we would see a better for-profit sector that we may get to eventually with good regulation and good oversight. But I think the sector did this to themselves and I think that will become more and more true. <laughs> Oh my goodness! <laughs> Do you want to respond? Wow! To make the argument that the sector brought this on and and caused it by saying we're under attack, I mean, I I think so. Do you look have at the one I'm, iota of data or information or conversations with I'm saying, anyone in the sector to support that? I'm saying that when a this is just another I here's do. my blanket no, criticism I'm, I'm, with no Barmack. data to look, support it. I I think it's terrible when we don't see things coming, and we're all guilty of that. But we should all be wise enough to at least look back and understand underlying causalities post facto. And I will tell you that the, that the for-profit sector could have shut down the gainful employment regulation early on had they walked in with any kind of a constructive, no matter how thinly uh, disguised it might have been, they would have totally deflated the, the energy out of the effort and they would have well, completely Well, I can't respond to hypotheticals, but I can give you a perfect example. <clears throat> Go ahead. You know, you're, you're this, the... the, the Assumption in those arguments is that the, either the administration or the regulatory sector, those at the Department of Ed, were, would be open to and willing to have candid, open conversations about the issues and about the regulations. Right. Okay. Now, I think your, your assumption is absolutely flawed. Because, you know, and, I, and I'll use my own self as an example. Last year, um, because of the debt that we had and the financial responsibility standards, we were required to post a letter of credit with the Department of Education because we failed to meet their composite score. We spent, I spent, six months reaching out to the undersecretary and, and to um, uh, the head of the federal student aid, Robin Miner, and repeated with multiple emails, letters, and requests, said, please sit down with us. Let's have a conversation about this, because I want to go through and explain where we are financially, how we are operating, and why there shouldn't be this concern that would require a 50% letter. This is last year? This was last year. Well, had you now, done on, I'm this... I'm not finished. And okay? they rejected it. And we were rejected right. at every single turn. And I can tell you, for the last five or six years, especially under this administration and the marching orders that have been given to the department, there is no receptivity to discussing the issues, to meeting with the for-profit sector, and having a rational discussion about so the data. Yeah, the, so, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to quickly respond, and we need so to So the fellow who's going to be the chairman of uh, the University of Phoenix, Tony Miller who was the Deputy Secretary of Education when this effort began, you believe had such an ideological animus towards the sector that he is now part of that he wouldn't hear you out? No, I don't believe that he had, but I believe the marching orders from the administration. Well, you know, if you want to go This is why that, I say this is what that, history but, will find, yeah. is that there, there, were no, there, no, no worse, there were no such marching orders. It didn't happen, it didn't exist. But, you know, the new administration can look into any, anything and everything and it's just not there in 2009. Okay, That's not the way it happened. I, I'm, 
I should probably not interrupt audience Q&A, but I would also say beyond this administration, uh, I think if you look at, for instance, the GAO report and Senator Harkin's use mm -hmm. of it and the abuse of that report and inaccuracies in the report, I don't know that that had any connection to the administration, but I do think <coughs> there's ample evidence to show that there were people <coughs> in Washington who seemed to have a particular axe to grind with for-profit schools. I don't know that it was ideological or anything else, but there were things said about the schools, in particular flawed GAO report, that made you think, there's not necessarily a fair hearing going on here. I, I have no idea what happened in the administration. I can only say what I saw from the outside. All right. Did we have some questions from the audience? I think this gentleman in the suit raises hand first here. Maybe just state your name and your question. Mm -hmm. Mike's not on. <coughs> Sounds like it's on now, I think. Testing. Yeah. Hi, my name's Lou Cordia, and I have a government relations firm here in Washington. And it sounds like all of you are, uh, would, be a, would be opposed to any of the bad actors in the higher, edge, uh, higher ed um, sector. But I would appreciate hearing from all of you, but first and foremost by Mr. Shireman, uh, you, you did a good job in identifying universities that had, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, uh, did bad things for students or took advantage of students and identified some things, some folks and ways to punish them when you were at the Department of Education and subsequently. Uh, my question though is, you seem to be focused on the for-profits. So my first question is, can you name a half a dozen of the of nonprofit universities that you would view <coughs> as bad actors? Can you name a half a dozen for-profit universities that you would view as good actors, for example, just to show that it's not, you know, a, a focus on for So I haven't named any college good or bad, for-profit or non-profit, and I'm not going to do so because it is really, really difficult to assess whether a college is good or bad, which is why education has to be handled in a way that is different from cars or phones or chairs, or clothes, or anything else. That is my point. It is really, really difficult. Is Harvard great? I don't know if Harvard's great. I don't know if Harvard's a big waste of money. I mean, it, it's really difficult to do these things, so we need to be cautious, careful, and I know there are circumstances when it's particularly hazardous. Um, all I did, now I was at the administration in the first 18 months, there were not a lot of actions taken against any particular schools during my time there. It was all about um, Im improving the regulatory structure because we were pumping billions of additional dollars in the stimulus. You remember the economy was collapsing. We were relying on for-profit colleges to enroll students because states had shut down enrollment at their colleges. We were relying on them. And the issue internally was, are we going to be seen later? Is our legacy going to be that we shoveled boatloads of, of grants and loans into crappy colleges for students? We better make sure that this stuff is above board. And that's why we started that. That's why we started that process. But, but you, you, you're not distinguishing in your history or now that there's a, there's a difference between for-profits and non-profits, but you know, the examples you've used over the years is always the for, how, how I'd ask for you to look are. at the evidence. I, I mean, what examples are you? That, that's, 
that's where I think you know the question was about was about history and and look at the history. I do think there are particular dynamics at for profits that that explain why we see certain th- why everyone here has acknowledged that that uh, predatory practices are more likely there. But I think of it much whoa, like whoa whoa whoa! I didn't acknowledge <laughs> that. Come on, don't put words in our mouth, Bob. Um, I thought I heard that from folks, but what, however you want to, however you, however you want to interpret it. I think you um, just underscored, I mean, underscored the point I'm trying to make is that there's those. It's that kind of they're language. They're more. Li- it's more. It's more like for profits, but I don't hear the same criticism or investigation yeah, of the nonprofits. Side, so that's why I was asking you: Are there any good? Uh, for profits in your mind, are there a string of so here's bad here's the problem with so the moment that a for profit has a reputation of being good, what happens is what Ben described, which is the shareholders then demand that they capitalize on that good reputation and expand as quickly as possible to make to take advantage of it. So there are for profit institutions that have not expanded dramatically. Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. And, and, uh, and during the time, 2009 to 12, 13, Strayer did not expand and did not take advantage and expand in the same way that others did. But the moment I name something like that, then it's like, oh, Strayer's good. Strayer has a good reputation. Then you have the demand, well, how are we going to capitalize this? How are we going to double our number of students to take advantage of that? And then things go to the toilet. And that's the dynamic that does not exist in the nonprofit and public sector, which is why I say that it's more hazardous in that sector. Go ahead, sir. Okay. I really want to respond, but we need to get other questions. (laughs) Michael Enders, Washington, D.C. How would you compare the housing uh, bubble that burst a few years back and the current bubble in higher education? And do you think that government money is the problematic common denominator? Do you want to address this one, Neil? Well, I mean, I'll let others talk about it, too, but I think that's that's a big problem. I mean, if you look at where we had big price inflation and overconsumption, it's places with big subsidies. Higher education is, of course, what we're talking about. Health care and housing. Absolutely, I think that subsidies uh, incentivize people to overconsume things. But I'm hesitant when people say that we have a bubble in higher education and it's going to somehow burst like the housing uh, uh, bubble burst. Um, because we do still see people rewarded for degrees. The problem is I think a lot of that is credential inflation, where employer can demand more degrees. Um, and so I don't think it's suddenly everyone's going to decide it's unsustainable. But you may start to see, and I think there's been some evidence of this, of students being less willing to take on some debt. Uh, and so maybe instead of a burst, we may have some sort of correction. My fear is that, and maybe not with this new administration, nobody knows what they're going to do is, well, we say if debt gets too high, let's just make more of it grants. Um, and then you're not really dealing with the root problem of subsidies changing incentives, but you're also reducing people's incentives to say, maybe I shouldn't demand the water park or whatever. you want to address this one, Ben? I mean, I think just from a, <clears throat> a sheer scale, I mean, the student loan market's about 1.2, 1.3 trillion. The housing market's like 8 trillion or something like that. Like, the scale's nowhere close to each other. Um, the other thing is, somewhat counterintuitively, we see that it's actually folks who tend to have very low levels of debt who are the worst performers here. Because if you think about it, a loan is supposed to be 
sort of borrowing against your future income so that you go to college, you graduate, you get an income boost, you pay back your loan. The folks who go for, say, a semester, a year, et cetera, they may have like three or $4,000. Their monthly payment's pretty affordable, but their problem is they've got no. any sort of monthly payment because they have really no return on their sort of um, <clears throat> thing they paid for. I mean, I think we tried to look at this actually to see like could you map sort of where people have student debt to see if there were like distressed communities where it may be particularly problematic. Part of the challenge of the credit report data is actually just shockingly poor in terms of figuring out like where it is and all that. And the, the department actually doesn't really tend to look at geography when it talks about these things, which it probably should because you know, a lot of education is online, but also a lot of it is still very localized. So if you've got places that may be enrolling several thousand people, giving them debt and producing bad results, they probably all live somewhere close to there. So that may be having effects on individual communities, but I don't think it's going to have some big national effect. The dollars involved are too small and the number of people is not high enough. Yeah, I do need to be. Somewhere. You need to run. <laughs> I, need to, I need to within five minutes. I need to. I need to run out the door. Well? So no, no, that's okay. fine. Can we do one more question? Yes, you you, yeah, yeah, okay. Like a quick one. You, right there with the scarf. Thanks, uh, Peggy Ochowski. I'm the congressional correspondent for the Hispanic Outlook on Higher Education. So I focus a lot on HSIs, uh, the Hispanic Serving Institutions, and it seems to me a lot of this. Uh, vitriol towards for-profits is that a lot of minorities are going to them and taking money, because it's always follow the money, right, are taking money from the public colleges. Now, why do public colleges want minorities, especially Hispanics? Because there's these huge funds to fund Hispanic-serving institutions. How do they get that money? By having 25% of their undergraduate population Hispanic. So every Hispanic that the for-profits take from the public schools uh, reduces their chance to get the HSI money. I, I think that's, and this, this is behind the dreamers and everything else, universities wanting dreamers, because that adds to their Hispanic population and they get to put their now it's in this HSI money. So um, my question is, I'm wondering if the new uh, Trump administration will support these specialized money programs that go to groups like Hispanics, like the HSI program, which is an over a billion dollar fund. And it was one of the first things that, that uh, the Department of Education supported when they came in with Obama in 2008. Is there anybody who'd like to address this question? Well, I represent public institutions. Uh, and while there is a great desire to, be, uh, to serve the community around them, uh, and there is certainly a part of a, a number of my institution's mission is very specifically ensuring access for, for underserved populations, Candidly, I mean, that's a nice conspiracy theory, but, but, but the behavior you would expect to see to verify it would consist of things like Spanish language advertising, heavy pressure, recruiters. Those are attributes not of the public sector, but of the for-profit sector. Just, just whether they're good or not, I don't know. But just, you know, things are subject to verification in life, and you would see markers. The idea of creating vitriol at the national level to, to get HSI status 
would be the circuitous way of getting there. So that's there's my, no empirical yeah. basis for that statement. I mean, Hispanic student, there, there's literally no empirical basis for that statement you made. I mean, essentially, Hispanic students have been the fastest growing population in higher education over the last several years. They've grown substantially sort of everywhere, and I, I don't think there's any proof for what you're alleging. Yeah. And I'll just say what we've said about the Trump administration already, which we have no idea what they do. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't heard them mention those uh, pots of money either, so. Yeah. yeah, all the there are all sorts of categories of spending, and I haven't heard him mention it all. I would actually be surprised if at least Donald Trump himself was familiar with it, because you really got to read into a lot of Department of Education budgets to even know they're there. Yeah. Neil, I'm going to run out the door, not yeah. because I don't love the Cato I'll Institute. <laughs> we should have given you, you the one that wasn't yeah. connected to the state. Take care, Bob. Thanks, Bob. And actually, I mean, I just we're done. We're later anyway. Yeah. So, well, thank well, you, everybody, for attending. And there's lunch. Uh, let me make sure I give you the right instructions. I'll, I'll listen carefully, and if you're wrong, yeah. I'll tell uh, you. Um, lunch will be held on the second level in the George M. Yeager Conference Center up the spiral staircase. Yeah. Thank you very much <laughs> yeah. for moderating this. Yes, yeah. thank, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>